Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome to the latest edition of March Madness 365. Coming on the heels of the announcement of the next set of Final Four destinations. The sites announced earlier on Monday through our March Madness social media platforms. Now the next four Final Fours, they're all set. 2019, we will be in Minnesota. In 20, Atlanta, 21, Indianapolis, 22, New Orleans. Last week, the Men's Basketball Selection Committee heard proposals from seven cities, Los Angeles, North Texas, Detroit, Houston, Phoenix, San Antonio, and Indianapolis. Seven cities for four years of 2023, 24, 25, 26. Keep in mind with Los Angeles, that's the new NFL stadium, the new home of the Chargers and the Rams. Not done yet. And certainly an issue that was before the committee is, you know, how they would handle major events. Obviously, whether or not it was going to be enclosed, not enclosed. Uh, And that was a bit of a curveball for the selection committee in deciding on that. North Texas uh, was a case in which, you know, you had to decide, do you want to go to Dallas where everything was really spread out? I'm not saying they're not going to get another one, but everything really spread out. When we were there last, you had the arena in Arlington, the Dome, AT&T Stadium. A lot of events were going on in Dallas and in Fort Worth, so really spread out. And then Detroit. Last time they hosted was in 2009 at Ford Field, North Carolina, uh, that year destroying Michigan State. Um, And Detroit's come a long way as a city and is getting better and better. Uh, The question is, will they get one? Well, the committee doled out four. I gave you the three. They did not. And here's the order. They went with Houston for 2023. So now Houston will have its third Final Four after hosting in 2011, 2016. In 2024, Keeping it out west with Phoenix after Phoenix hosted very successfully a year ago in 2017. And then in 2025, San Antonio, after just hosting last April. San Antonio is certainly one of the favorite destinations for the Final Four. It has been for years. And in 2026, Indianapolis. Indy is promised essentially some sort of major event Every five years, whether that's a Final Four men's or women's, a regional final, or an NCAA convention. Excuse me, not a regional final. First and second round, because you got eight teams, or an NCAA convention. So Indies will spread out from 21 to 26. Indy, in fact, only looked at 24 and 26. Uh, and so it made sense to spread it out over that five-year period. So I think people are going to be very happy because I think people were pleased with the Final Four in Houston this last time, much more so than 2011 in 2016. I mean, clearly it had an unbelievable uh, game, obviously, with Villanova knocking off uh, North Carolina. Phoenix, we had a great game as well, I thought, with North Carolina beating Gonzaga. San Antonio uh, is just a great place to host it, uh, clearly with uh, all the success that, uh, that's been had there over the years. Um, people just love the Riverwalk, fans, players, staff, everyone. And Indy, downtown location, Lucas Oil Stadium, that's been a, basically a plus for everyone that's uh, participated 
in the Final Four event. So a couple interviews that I want you to hear around this topic. I had a chance to catch up first with Dan Gavitt. He is the NCAA vice president in charge of all things basketball. And I wanted to ask him about basically why these cities were selected. So first off, here's Dan Gavitt. All right, Dan, let's talk about the next four years that you guys awarded, starting in 2023. Why Houston? Houston did a very good job in 2016 hosting uh, the Final Four. And even in just a short amount of time since then, the downtown area has developed a great deal more. Um, There's more hotels in the downtown area, so much so that we can now bring the Final Four teams from the Galleria area to the downtown area where the convention center is, where March Madness Music Festival will be. So we think that the experience for the teams and their fans will be that much richer. It's an outstanding facility, Energy Park, and um, they've got now experience. This would be their third Final Four at that facility and and with a similar staff and and, uh, LOC makeup as well. A lot of support uh, from the mayor's office in Houston also. How much did it play in that there was an improvement, you could actually see it, from 2011 to 2016? Significant difference. Um, You know, had that dramatic improvement not happened, I don't know if we'd be in the same situation now. All right, let's go to 2024. Phoenix, which just had a Final Four, will be back in the rotation. Why Phoenix in 24? Well, again, they did a terrific job in hosting in in 2017. Um, And it was the first time, as you recall, that that the Final Four was held on the West Coast uh, since Seattle, uh, 22 years before then. So bringing the event back to the West Coast was really important to the committee. Um, They did a terrific job in hosting in 2017. It was a very much a fan favorite place in, in April with the with the weather, the facilities outstanding, and um, so the committee thought it was time to go back to Phoenix after their very successful last host. Now, one of the things that happened a couple of years ago when they hosted was it was kind of spread out. I mean, you had some teams in downtown Phoenix, you had Scottsdale as a as a venue, and of course the arena, the stadiums in Glendale. What proposal was given in terms of maybe to bring things a little bit more centralized? Well, again, similar to Houston, there's a little more development downtown Phoenix, so there's more fans that can be accommodated in the hotels, creating that important kind of vibe and footprint in downtown Phoenix. You're right, there will be a lot of other folks that will be spread around the, the Valley of the Sun at the resorts that are so fantastic in that area. Um, but, you know, th- there's very few places, really, uh, despite them being very popular for the Final Four, that have a very condensed footprint. We know certainly Indianapolis, San Antonio, Atlanta, um, but most of the other places are somewhat of a spread footprint. and. Um, Phoenix offers an awful lot of other things. Certainly a lot of major events are held in Phoenix, Super Bowl and CFP Championship and bowl games and the like. So, um, but again, as much as anything, just making sure this event, this national championship is moved around the country and gets to the West Coast is important. All right, so let's keep moving down to 25. Uh, San Antonio, where we just were uh, for the Final Four, always a fan, player, coach, favorite uh, why back in San Antonio in 25? Well, you mentioned a lot of the reasons right there. Um, and as I just mentioned, you know, the, the condensed footprint of San Antonio with the Alamo Dome being so close to the convention center and all the hotels around the Riverwalk uh, makes it a very convenient place for the Final Four to be held. But as much as anything, I think it's, it's what they did in, de- in pro- uh, delivering on all the promises they made 
in, in just this past year's Final Four. I, I think there were some on the staff and the committee that were a little concerned about San Antonio's ability to host the Final Four as it's grown so much since the last 10 years, uh, the last time that they hosted in 2008. And yet they proved prove that they could deliver on it and that it was a terrific experience even with a larger and more complex event. And so uh, with that success, I think the committee felt very strongly that they deserve another opportunity. So Indianapolis always sort of has a, a role in this rotation. Uh, why specifically, though, Indian 26? Well, they host in 21, um, so it's five years after that. Um, you know, kind of a nice spread from one year, you know, from last host until the next one. Um, they bid for just two years. Uh, 24 was the other one, so that would have been only three years after they host in 21. So the committee thought that 26 was the, was the most appropriate year, five years between hosting opportunities. And it, it really is an, an outstanding place for the Final Four. Um, I think uh, by all measures, uh, the condensed footprint again of, of the outstanding venue and hotels. And the Hoosier State loves basketball, and it comes out cloud and clear when they host the Final Four. It's kind of part of the city's heritage in many ways. And as we wrap up, Dan, there were three other cities that bid, uh, Detroit, North Texas, and Los Angeles, a building that has not been completed yet uh, for the NFL. Uh, what would you say to those three committees, those cities, as they potentially consider you know, the next round for years beyond uh, 26? Well, this is my second time uh, with the staff in supporting the committee on a Final Four bid process. And by far and away, compared to the last time, it was the most competitive. The three unsuccessful bidding cities were really viable options. Um, each one of them had something that could have offered an incredible experience for a future Final Four. And I'm very hopeful uh, that they will be awarded a future Final Four in the next process. All three cities, uh, Detroit, North Texas, and Los Angeles, have fantastic things to offer um, for the experience around the Final Four, and um, we're uh, you know we're very hopeful that they'll continue to be interested and be back in the mix next time. We'll have the opportunity to host uh, what's a national treasure. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Andy. Also had a chance to catch up, and these were done in Boston last week while the selection committee was hearing proposals from all seven cities. With Bruce Rasmussen, he is the outgoing chair of the NCAA Men's Basketball Selection Committee. About the process, how do these cities get selected to get there? So Bruce Rasmussen, really his last duty as the selection committee chair. Uh, Bernard Muir, the Stanford athletic director, will take over this next year for the Final Four in 19. And then they just named Kevin White, the Duke athletic director. He'll be the chair for the 2020 Final Four in Atlanta. But here's Bruce Rasmussen on the process of selecting the Final Four cities. Bruce, I want to go over the process of how a site is selected to host the Final Four. What is that process like for the selection committee? Well, first of all, prior to the selection committee seeing any of the the possible cities, uh, the NCAA staff has done a lot of the background work. They put out an RFP, they've done initial 
investigations and site visits to make certain that the cities that are bidding meet all of the specs and the requirements. And, and then when always, it comes to us, to our March first of all, one of, or two on Twitter, of our committee Facebook, members is, is to follow at each of the sites and does the intense, very specific walkthrough and will report and of course, back to our the coverage full on the sport. We meet as a full committee. Now let's get to our uh, feature the, interview here each of the candidates, March Madness 365. Uh, each of the candidates meet with us, make a long presentation. Not only they make a presentation, but there's a question and answer period. And then we again meet as a committee and, and we get input from the NCAA staff. We have intense and long discussions, much like selection. Uh, in a way, it's a lot like the last four in and the first four out, because you know that for the four cities that, that make it, uh, they're going to be very enthusiastic, very excited, very upbeat about the communication. But for those three cities that didn't get selected, you know, it's a it's a tough communication because in this instance, those three cities were tremendous opportunities and options for the committee. So obviously, building, uh, lodging, yes, you know, uh, proximity to the airport, all these kinds of things. How would you rank? sort of some of the most important things that you and the committee have been looking at? It's a great question. And the first thing we look at is student-athlete experience. So the facility, uh, the, the distance from the airport, the quality of the hotels, the convenience of all of the, the different entities that go into a host city. But the first thing we look at is student-athlete experience. In terms of, you know, you talk about the competitiveness of this. Um, how... The presentations that the each committee and city go through, how exhaustive is that process and whether or not they even know, you know, sort of what the other has uh, <laughs> given in terms of bells and whistles in terms yeah. of their presentation? Again, it's a great question. And I think that especially for cities that have been through the process before, they refine the process. They have a better idea as to what we are looking at. If they've hosted before, they certainly have a better idea as to what we are looking at. But again, part of the process for us is to move the final four around to different geographic regions regions into different cities, but you see a difference in presentations from those that have maybe hosted, those that have made presentations before, and maybe those that are making presentations for the first time. And why a four-year cycle? Where did that come from? Well, you have to go long enough out to hold enough hotel rooms. You need more than 10,000 hotel rooms, and those have to be held. You have convention space. You have music festival site space. You know, you have a lot of, you have the facility. A lot of the facilities are used for Super Bowl and college football playoffs and, and uh, soccer World Cup and so forth. So you have to go far enough out so that we can make sure that we have enough of those facilities available. Thanks, Bruce. Thank you. And coming up here on March Madness 365, UCF head coach Johnny Dawkins. And now joining me here on March Madness 365, UCF head coach Johnny Dawkins. Uh, Johnny, you guys, I think, are primed for a breakout season if you're healthy. So we got to deal with that right at the beginning. Let's run through the gamut of injuries, uh, including your son, uh, Aubrey Dawkins, who missed last season, Taco Fall, who had to cut his season short, B.J. Taylor, same deal. So let's just go through the top three guys, because obviously it'll affect what kind of year you're going to have. Uh, we'll start with your son. Uh, well, he's doing well. Uh, he's he's fully cleared. He's been cleared for the last several months. So he's been playing, working out, playing pickup games. So 
you know, just gaining confidence, you know, after having sat out a year. So he's he's in good shape. And continue down, Taco and BJ? Uh, Taco, the same thing. Taco is uh, is he. His healing has gone well. Uh, he's also cleared. Uh, he's still, you know, you know, working his way back, but uh, he's in a good place. Uh, you know, we still not having him, you know, anyone initiate too much contact with him. Still want him to kind of you know, have some extra time because of his stature, but uh, he's doing well. He feels great, and he's looking forward to the season. And uh, with regards to BJ, uh, BJ's also doing well. Uh, he's recovered from his injury. He's been cleared. He's just working out training this offseason as well. So, with those three healthy for the start of the year, and with, with everything else that you've got coming back and coming in, which we can get into here, uh, how do you feel about the expectations with this group, which I think are right near the top of the American Athletic Conference? Well, I'm, I'm fine with expectations. You know, I'd, I'd rather be on the end of that, as you know, as a competitor, uh, and then you have to go out there and perform. But uh, I think more you have expectations, that means, you know, you're, you're programmed in a position where it's, it's moving, you know, in the, in the right direction. I mean, even last year, when you guys weren't at full strength, you guys were still on the cusp of, you know, being potentially a tournament team. A couple things had to go right for you. What you learn about this team last season, dealing with that adversity and not being 100% healthy? Well, I think they showed a lot of resilience last year. I mean, we could easily, based on how, how it went for us early with, you know, the injuries, we could easily, you know, been 13 and 19. Instead, we were 19 and 13. And that, that just speaks, you know, I think volumes about the, the guys that I was able to coach. They were willing to do whatever it took to, to give us a competitive opportunity every night. And I think it showed. And I think we, we played competitive basketball, and they gave us a chance on most nights to, to win. And, and, and that's what you want to see out of a group, especially when uh, you're playing shorthanded and, and uh, guys were able to step up and really help us. So who stood out for you last season that stepped up in lieu of these injuries? Uh, I think a number of guys stepped up. I think at the point guard, when B.J. went down, you know, Terrell Allen did a great job for us. Uh, he came in and uh, played with a lot of confidence. Uh, he, he's a pure point guard. He made the guys around him better, and he made us go. And uh, I think it starts with him at the point. I thought Caesar, our freshman that was in the backcourt, I thought he did a great job. He got better and better as the season went on, as, as a lot of freshmen do. And uh, he started to really steady us a lot, too, as, as he started to get comfortable with his minutes. But that was another player that really helped us. I thought Chad Brown, you know, our big guy, I thought uh, he, he wasn't expecting to, to start and play those minutes with Taco there, but he was thrown in that position. And, you know, he never shook his shoulders. He just, you know, moved forward, kept competing for us, and, uh you know, he gave us a lot inside and an interior presence, which we really needed. Obviously, when Taco's not on the floor, it changes the way you guys play. Knowing that he's coming back, uh, how, how does that alter your preparation of, you know, amount of minutes he's going to be on the court and, and what this team will look like with him on the floor and without, especially when you've got, you know, wings, guards that are coming back, the, the talent level of your son and B.J. Taylor? Well, you know, everything for us, man, is through Taco. I mean, you know, when you have a player like him, you have to utilize him. I mean, he's so he's so rare, especially in today's game, as you know. Seven-footer, traditional big, low. Not just center. a seven-footer. <laughs> seven, 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 seven foot plus, I'll say. Yes. So, he, you know, with that, he's a, you know, he's such a unique player that, you know, you have to utilize him. There's no use having him, you know, in your program and on your team if you're not going to utilize him on both ends of the court. So, so what we do defensively, you know, we, we, it, it revolves around Taco and what we do offensively. The same thing will apply. And that's even with the additions of guys getting healthy. I, I think you have to have him as a, uh, as a centerpiece of what you do. So when you were coaching someone like him, 
and I'm curious, and I think we talked about this a little before, when, you know, someone of seven, seven foot six, I mean, that kind of size, what kind of advice did you seek to try to find, you know, uh, just guidance of coaching someone of that height? Well, we've kind of reached out to people, of course, uh, you know, from a staff, you know, perspective, you know, I think, uh, you know, our trainers and everyone reached out to like Houston because we wanted to understand how they, you know, managed Yao Ming. He had a long career. And a lot of times when big guys are that size, you're worried about their ability to stay durable. So we reached out to them. Uh, of course, I was fortunate. I played with, you know, two, two guys, his height or tall, actually, and, and Manu Bowl and, and Sean Bradley, believe it or not. One was seven six, I think one was seven seven. So, you know, having that experience of having been with those guys as teammates gave me, a, you know, a good perspective of, of what, you know, we wanted to do with them as well. And then just, you know, talking to different people just in general about basketball, about the game, where it's trending, and just trying to gather as much information so that when we, you know, plug them in, you know, we have an idea which direction we wanted to go in. So what did you remember from your playing days of, of playing with the late Manu Bull and Sean Bradley? You know, they both were very unique big guys. I mean, Manute was was a defensive specialist, you know, maybe one of the best defensive, you know, shot blockers and, and, and protectors of the rim that I'd ever seen. And then, you know, Sean was very skilled at that size. He could face up, knock down jumpers. You know, he was a different type player than Manute. And uh, I think, you know, uh, Taco has a chance to be somewhere in, in the middle. You know, he, he's not really Manute. He, he's, he's incredible at blocking shots. And, of course, he's an intimidator around the rim. You know, and, and he's not Sean Bradley, who was most skilled on the perimeter. But he's somewhere in between, and he's still developing because he's he's younger than those players. He's only been playing like six years. So his best basketball, as I always say, is still ahead of him every year. So I learned that, you know, to utilize him is, is very important. You know, in both cases, we utilize those big guys on the teams that I played for. Not so much, you know, minute offensively, but defensively, of course. And of Sean, we, use, we utilized him offensively as well. So... We want to make sure, especially in today's basketball, where everyone is, you know, going away from that to to not get lured into that when you have a player with the type of presence that that uh, Taco has. So, Johnny, you you did not recruit him. Once you got on campus, how did you get closer to him to build that relationship? Uh, well, I think it was important right away. You know, when I arrived on campus, uh, I met with the team and uh, kind of explained, you know, my vision to them and really just tried to get to know him. And uh, he's, he's easy to get to know because he's such a great guy. And so that, that wasn't very difficult to develop a relationship. And then he's trying to get the trust factor, as you know. You know, in our profession, that's, that's everything, you know, to get the young people to trust, trust you. And, and, and I think we've been able to do that over the years we've been together and he, with his understanding that, you know, hey, we want to have a great vision for our team and our program, but also we want to have a great vision for Taco and what Taco wants to accomplish. And, uh, and he's seen us, you know, act on that every day. So coaching your son, you, you didn't get that chance last year because he got hurt. Um, what are you looking forward to most about being able to coach your son in, in a role in which he's going to have, you know, clearly um, a major part of the success of this team next season? Uh, you know, I mean, you know, he's, he's, he's an athletic wing player. You know, he can, he can knock down shots. He also can finish around the basket. Uh, you know, he'll help us also defensively. He's long. And those are things I expect him to, to bring to our team. I expect him to bring some maturity. You know, he's one of the players that uh, before transferring in, he's, you know, he's you know, had success and, you know, he's been on teams that played in the postseason before, you know, at Michigan. So uh, I expect some leadership. You know, he's old enough that that should be a part of, you know, what he helps bring to our program as well. You know, when you were at Stanford, you, I thought you had great success. You maybe didn't get over the hump enough. What appealed to you the most, though, uh, because you landed on your feet pretty well, pretty quickly, 
about this opportunity at UCF? Well, I mean, I had heard a lot of great things about UCF. Uh, you know, I didn't know much about it, you know, myself, but you know, anyone I spoke to spoke very highly. And uh, so I was, you know, intrigued by that. And then, uh, you know, of course, you know, I knew the reputation of the you know, athletic director that, that uh, was hired. So he had a great reputation. I didn't know him well, but I, I did know of him. And so, uh, you know, that, I thought that was important. And our president, I mean, President Hitt, who I just retired, uh, you know, i have seen the job that he'd done over the last several decades of, of taking UCF, you know, to new heights. So I just saw a lot of, you know, really, really good people in leadership positions. And, uh, and you know how it is in any profession, whether you're a player, coach, you're in management and business or whatever, you know, it's about the people. Now, when I, when I saw the people that were involved and the people that were helping to, uh, to shine a light on this university, and I was like, it's a no-brainer. You know, I think it's a great opportunity, and, and I wanted to be a part of it. And, and, Johnny, in terms of the schedule for next season, to put you guys in position, you know, if you don't win the uh, automatic bid or, you know, if you don't finish first or second, you've done a good job of making sure you guys are playing a high-level schedule. What do you have on tap to make sure that you're in position uh, to make sure that you've got those opportunities, uh, you know, so when the selection committee looks at UCF, they have a feeling this is a team that can be in the tournament. Well, I'm hopeful that they'll always see that we, we're going to always schedule it as, as tough as we can. And uh, we, we, we've attempted to do that again this year. And so, I mean, we have uh, two home and, you know, away games that I think are, are very good for us. We, you know, we have an away game versus Missouri. That'll be a tough environment. And, uh, of course, that'll be a tough place to play. Uh, we also have Alabama. They're coming here on a return game, so we, we have a game on, you know, on tap with them. And we play Illinois State, who's, I mean, the last several years, their RPI has been as high as anyone's RPI. And, and Dan has done a great job with his program there, you know. And then we're in the, uh, you know, Puerto Rican shootout, which uh, which will be, you know, in, in uh, Myrtle Beach because of, you know, the hurricane and, and the damage over there. So it'll be played here in Myrtle Beach. And, of course, you have a great field there. You know, there are a number of teams. I don't want to, you know, miss out teams. But you have, you know, Wake Forest. You have West Virginia. You have Western Kentucky. You have St. Joe's. I mean, and on and on and on. You have, a, you know, a really good field in that in that tournament as well. So I think, you know, given that, you know, preseason, and then we already know how conference is for us. I mean, conference is so tough. I mean, you have so many good teams, so many traditional powers that – uh you know, we know we're going to, you know, have a schedule that that's going to have, you know, that's going to be strong enough to uh, to put us in position to do what, you know, to do whatever, you know, you know, we're afforded to be able to do. Well, and to that point, is uh, before I let you go, Johnny, the expectation is to, for this team to compete for the title in your league and be in the NCAA tournament. How much of your guys and workouts, especially the older guys like your son, like BJ, like Taco, embrace that? to sort of almost make it like that's what we, you know, that it's that or bust. I mean, that's what we expect to have happen uh, in March of next year. I, I believe, I, I think they have an understanding that, uh, you know, they've been, you know, people are you know, speculating, you know, a position of where, where we should be. And, uh, you know, I try to tell my guys all the time, you know, ever since I've been coaching, you know, it's their, you know, it's people's expectations are expectations. You know, we should be working, you know, to, to at a championship level every day regardless of what the expectations are. And that's kind of how we've always approached it. You know, it's, you know, our expectations are always the highest of expectations. So, therefore, it's, it's no real change in this year from last year. You know, we had the same approach and the same mindset, you know, uh, going into every season that we want to have a championship-type mindset. And uh, that's how we want to train every day. And so there shouldn't be no, oh, this is going to be a big difference this year. It's, 
that's what human nature does to you. For us, we want to we want to prepare mentally like that every year, every practice, every game, and therefore I think you you find more consistency in your performance when you when you approach it that way. Appreciate it, Johnny. Thank you. Hey, thanks a lot, Andy. And that'll wrap up this edition of March Madness 365. As always, you can find our podcasts in all our March Madness social handles on NCAA.com and through Turner Podcasts. Thanks for listening.